Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Today I have a guest on the show and I'm talking to Thomas Henley, passionate autism advocate, public speaker and online content creator. Thomas has his own podcast, the Thoughty Orty podcast, all things autism and mental health. He's also a YouTuber and documentary creator and that's all in his spare time because Thomas is also a business and event project manager for a non-profit organisation. Amazingly, Thomas is a former Commonwealth Championship Taekwondo gold medalist and owner of the Best Male Fighter Trophy for his heavyweight bouts. Diagnosed with Asperger's Syndrome at age 10 and then partnering with the charity Anna Kennedy Online, Thomas has become an autism advocate. He openly shares that he suffers from meltdowns, panic attacks, generalised anxiety disorder, binge eating disorder and severe depression. Despite his struggles, he has developed strong social and communication skills and has achieved an honours degree in biomedical science, has taught in SEND, the Special Educational Needs and Disabilities Teaching, has extensive travelling experience and developed his video and audio skills independently. Thomas is an incredibly inspiring human. So I'm really excited to be speaking with Thomas today about the whole range of different topics from hearing his personal story of struggling with his own mental health issues, including having bulimia as a child, this then morphing into binge eating disorder as an adult, then talking about his diagnosis with Asperger's syndrome at age 10, and more about the role of how autism interplays with eating disorders and interoception. We'll also be addressing stigma around males having eating disorders and the impact of sport and eating disorders when there is pressure to be a certain weight or size. So lots of really valuable content coming up. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Thomas today. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Thomas. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's nice to meet you, Harriet. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm good, actually. I mean, I'm enjoying the autumn vibes. <laughs> yes, nice crunchy leaves and lots of colours on the floor. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had a bit of trick-or-treating in our neighbourhood last night. I don't know if um, that's happened um, for you, has it, for Halloween? You know what? It's it's usually something that happens quite a lot, but we had nobody this year. Nobody came around. It was fairly disappointing, but <laughs> we didn't have any pumpkins outside. So I guess maybe we didn't sort of say, you can come and get sweets and stuff here. But <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. So Thomas, so great to have you here. Would you just start off, please, just by introducing yourself to the listeners, please? Sure. So I'm Thomas Henley. I am an autism and mental health advocate. I do a lot of my own work in terms of YouTubing, my own podcast. I've done a documentary and I have quite a strong background in biomedical sciences. Basically, over the past many years of my life, actually, I've been doing a lot of writing about my own experiences with depression, anxiety, a number of different disorders that I've had to deal with, and basically put that in in a lens for 
people who don't have them to better understand those conditions and also to share some of my own experiences, the things that I found helped and things that I found didn't help in order to try and help people. Okay, no, lovely. Well, thank you for sharing. And you seem to be, Thomas, quite a a prolific content creator. And you do all this in your spare time as well, is that right? (laughs) Yeah, I currently work for a a charity and I've actually recently moved to more of a part-time thing because I'm wanting to sort of develop my career outside of work a bit more. But in general, I do stay quite busy. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, well, I think, you know, just having a quick look on the net, I just think there's lots of content out there and I can see you've published blogs and articles, information on lots of different sites. So, uh, you know, great to see all that, you know, proactive work you're doing. Thank you. So, Thomas, could you take us back a little bit and tell us your story? I know that you sort of struggled with mental health and you had an eating disorder as a child, is that right? And also Mm. you were diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome at the age of 10. So, yeah. So, please, could you just tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. So, going back to around sort of just before the age of 10, my parents started to see some signs that perhaps I was a little bit different to most kids. I tended to be a lot more standoffish when it came to social interaction. I was sometimes a bit unaware of how to to go about making friends and how to interact with the public and in, in lots of different contexts. And one of the biggest giveaway signs for me was my sensory profile. So like I was very hypersensitive to noise and lights busy areas. I tend to have quite a wobbly gait. I sort of sort of walk in it in sort of a very tight, wiggly line when I walk because of my sensory vestibular system. And I used to spin a lot in a circle while I was watching TV as sort of a seething behavior. To be honest, at that age, around about the age of 10, I was starting to see some differences between myself and other people. And it was perhaps one of the most standout moments for me because it it kind of reassured me that those feelings that I didn't quite fit the mold were true and that it kind of validated it for me, even at at that young age. But when I got into secondary school, I really started to see the differences that I had between myself and other people. And there was a lot of cases where I was quite, isolated. I didn't really feel like I fit in. I felt like I had to put on a mask in order to make friends, which obviously didn't do a lot for my self-esteem, not being able to be who I was. And I turned from this very bubbly, friendly, chatty, little, energetic kid into quite a shy, introverted kid. And it made me quite a large target for bullies at all points during my school days and a lot of rumor mongering and making fun of me. And over time, the sensory environment at school, the social environments and the bullying really led to a lot of anxiety in me. And eventually it sort of morphed into depression, which came on quite strongly and quite severely. And so I was, I was put on a lot of different medications and I was put through the psychiatric pathways for adolescence which didn't really seem to work very heavily. And so I dealt with those. I have dealt with those disorders since 
the age of 14. So it's been about 10 years of my life where, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to think of life not having some sort of mental health issue. But at the same time, I've done a lot of things in my life that, that go against the grain of what is expected of someone who's autistic, as well as perhaps someone who suffers with, with depression to the extent that I do, could do. As far as taekwondo and university and traveling and it's a whole lot of stuff and I'm, I'm trying to keep it very concise. <laughs> concise speaking is not my forte, but yeah, I shall leave my short story there. <laughs> oh, it sounds like it was incredibly isolating for you, you know, particularly when you went to secondary school. It sounds like you suddenly became aware then more of your different and not fitting in, yeah. not being able to be yourself. And, and I think incredibly stressful as well, being bullied and sort of singled out in that way. Yeah, it was not a great experience. One of the things that really helped me was to get into the, the sport of taekwondo. It's for anybody who doesn't know, it's like the kicking version of boxing. So it's, there's no like punching to the head and stuff. It's just the kicks. And that obviously did a lot for my my self-esteem and my confidence and allowed me to stand up to people. And it, it allowed me to, it gave me an opportunity to be quite cathartic with my anxiety at the end of a school day and give me an opportunity in that environment to kind of develop my social skills as well. Mm. So would you say, because I guess, you know, just reading about all the different things that you've done and you've been through some incredibly hard times but you seem to be someone as well who has a great deal of resilience and resources, I guess. You know, you've obviously had to like dig really deep and have overcome many things. Would you say that Taekwondo has been one of the sort of key sort of helpful mm. strategies in helping with that? Yes. I recently did a presentation on sort of my, my life with mental health. And one thing that I tended to, to draw upon was the significance of anchor points for me. So a lot of the time when you're very heavily depressed for a large significant amount of time, it's quite hard to to function and to see some progress if you if you're always thinking about making yourself feel better. Because it you can try as hard as you as, as you want, but if you don't feel it, it's gonna feel quite quite hopeless and my first sort of anchor point in life was through Taekwondo. You know, I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to show that I could do the things that I thought I couldn't to myself. I wanted to show myself that I could succeed if I, if I tried. So yeah, that was quite a big, heavy sort of anchor point for me, specifically in, the, in those sort of teenage years. Mm. Yeah, well, it sounds like it's been really valuable as an anchor point. And it sounds like you went to quite a high level as well, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I did, actually. It's very surreal, even now. I went to the under-21 European Championships to compete for Great Britain. I got the furthest out of all of the British athletes at that point, which, you know, the GB team has, Taekwondo team has some amazing athletes and they're so talented, so... It was very unexpected for me. And also the Commonwealth Championships that I took part in as well, which was an amazing experience. 
a real, real sort of Rocky esque kind of feeling to it with the the crowd. And it was one of the my final fight was the end of the day, and so every all of the other rings were cleared out, and everybody was just <laughs> watching me and this yeah. this absolutely gigantic Australian dude just fighting it out for the gold medal, and it was. Very overwhelming, but very exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it sounds like an incredible experience, and I'm sure one you'll remember forever. Mm-hmm, definitely. So, what I'm interested in as well was: were your parents quite a key in sort of your support and sort of helping you as well? Do you think kind of form the kind of resilience and your way of coping that you managed to kind mm-hmm. of do? Or other people in your support network? I'd say that my family is thankfully incredibly supportive for me in different ways, really. My, my dad was quite integral in helping me get to the places that I needed to be. So he'd help a lot with, with getting me to events and to training. He took a, a very large sort of interest in my sporting, the sporting world that I was in. And then my mom's always been a very empathic and supportive woman. She's absolutely amazing. She used to be a teacher and when she she had me and when I got diagnosed, she decided to go into special needs education. She's actually like quite high up in the SEN world at the, at the moment because she's, she's just so great. And she's always encouraged me to be kind to myself and she's always given me the strength to push for any boundaries that I had, anything that, that I would find stressful that maybe some other parents would avoid with, the, with their artistic children. She would introduce me to those stressful environments, but not put the, the pressure on me to do too much. She'd give me a taster of it and try and ease me into things that I found hard. And that's the same for, for anything really in life and you know, even in my adult life, like with taekwondo and with university and with traveling. Often with autism, there comes a lot of what's called uh, executive dysfunction. So I think life skills and things are quite hard to, to learn and ingrain due to the nature of how we think and the anxiety levels. And, and even now, if I'm struggling, she's quite a, a strong sort of rock for me to, I mean, my, both my parents are, they're, they're just lovely people. It was a bit hard for them when I was an adolescent because I was very closed off. So the mental health side was was quite hard for them to deal with. But in terms of like the autism and the difficulties that I had, they were amazing. Mm-hmm. So Thomas, could you tell us a little bit more about your experience with bulimia as a child? Mm-hmm. So, you know, like when you have all that anxiety and when you have all that sort of difficulties with depression you kind of need an outlet for it if you're not expressing it and I didn't tend to express things outwardly so I wouldn't get angry at people I wouldn't shout at them or misbehave or or anything like that and a lot of the time I would take out my sadness and take out my stress and frustration on myself I self-harmed quite a bit when I was younger for a good few years and one of the things that I did when people started to notice my scars and my parents noticed, I quite often gravitated towards sugar 
Yeah. So I'd, I'd use sugar as, as a coping mechanism. I mean, I know a lot of people have like, you know, if they're feeling bad, they want to eat some chocolate or have some sweets or have some a sweet treat to bring the mood back up. But for me, it was kind of a bit of an extreme. And I used to stockpile lots and lots of sugary sweets and things like that. And, you know, bot- two liter bottles of Coke. And I would just basically just try to make myself feel ill with the sugar, you know, with the insulin spikes, because if you have the sugary, the sugary things, your, you know, your energy goes up and then it comes back down. And what I wanted was the coming back down bit, which relaxed me. And that was kind of like the seed of the bulimia. And when I started to become a lot more self-conscious and low self-esteem, I started to feel quite bad about my body. I felt quite bad about myself and I feel like I felt like I needed to sounds bizarre, but you know, punish myself for feeling the feelings that I, I felt. Eventually I started to, you know, want to improve my body. So I I started to be sick after I had these sugar binges, which obviously wasn't very good because it led to a lot of dental problems and a lot of acid reflux and all sorts of nasty stuff. But it generally went quite unnoticed, which is why it was one of the things that I gravitated towards. Um, It's actually quite strange because it's nowadays I've managed to control that part of bulimia, but I still have that element of binging in my life as well. So nowadays it's more the case that it's more of a binging disorder now rather than bulimia because it lacks the purging element. But yeah. <laughs> mm. oh, thank you for sharing. And it sounds like it was quite sort of driven by the sort of drive, I guess, to control how you were feeling. And like you were saying, like you'd eat the sugar and you'd get the high and then you would sort of come down and it was the kind of coming down that you were kind of seeking. Mm-hmm. Were you actually dieting or restricting your eating around those sugar binges or was it something a bit different from that it definitely it morphed into that over time especially when i started competing in taekwondo because there tends to be quite strict dieting in taekwondo it's a lot about being tall and being skinny and the taller you can be for a certain weight class the better you generally perform so it's got a very unhealthy component of, of it. And it's something that I've, I've seen in other athletes in Taekwondo. And that, that was definitely a thing for me because I really struggled to control the binging element of me. And, you know, I still wanted to compete. And so it led to me consuming a lot of my calories in the evening and not really eating enough during the day which, you know, sort of fed into that hormone cycle, you know, those ghrelin and leptin hormones just threw my brain out of whack. Mm. I think you just raised a really good point there as well about like being in sport and taekwondo is one example, isn't it? But where there is that pressure to, you know, be look a certain way or achieve a certain weight. And I guess it leaves a lot of athletes perhaps struggling with their relationship with food. Yeah, I definitely think in nowadays I've taken a lot of steps to try and control that. 
I find that making sure that I, I get in some soluble fiber in the morning, like porridge, does a lot for me. Sort of stabilizes my energy levels and concentration throughout the day and also isn't too filling for me because I, I don't tend to eat a lot during the start of the day. And definitely a large component of my, my recovery at the moment would be the sort of fitness lifestyle that I've, that I've adopted. So I'm at the moment, you know, over lockdown, I've decided, I decided to get into weightlifting and into, I wouldn't say bodybuilding, but just probably just weightlifting. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, protein's quite a large component of that. And the great thing about protein that I've discovered is that it's quite, it's quite stabilizing. It fills me up. If I manage to keep my diet on track and get the amount of protein that I need, I tend to be too full on a night to binge a lot. And having those alternatives like the low sugar, low carbohydrate, high protein bars that I can have on a night, even if I do binge, it doesn't tend to be as disabling as it would be for the rest of the day, the next day or the, or the week. Oh. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point, isn't it? In terms of sort of recovering from something like bulimia or binge eating, if you're sort of really trying to stabilize your blood sugar and your body physiology, it really is such a, gives you such a good sort of groundwork, doesn't it? I think then Definitely. to deal with some of the other bits. So I think, yeah, great tip. And with your sort of support with mental health, did you get sort of like specific eating or have you, you know, had some specific eating disorder support over the years? I haven't because it didn't tend to be the forefront of things. Most of the therapy that I've had is either around depression, anxiety, or panic. Those are the main sort of disabling factors, if you could say in my life at the moment. Mm. So I, I wouldn't say that I had specific support for it, but I definitely feel a lot more on top of my eating disorder when my mental health is in, in a better place. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And I guess it just shows the importance of not looking at any one mental health condition in isolation because of there's often lots of things going on, isn't there? Maybe like yeah. anxiety, depression, self-harm, eating disorders. And it all can become quite a kind of complex knot, can't it? And it needs yeah. a kind of holistic approach. Mm -hmm. um, I like that word. Holistic is a good word. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously as well, Thomas, I know you personally have an access eating disorder support treatment, but I think for many men with eating disorders, it's quite challenging to access treatment and there's a lot of stigma maybe around that. You know, do you sort of have any sort of thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. I think it is quite quite a big thing because a large component of how a lot of young men, perhaps my age, and even men who are older, tend to have the idea that you know, if you've got a problem, you fix it yourself or you you keep it to yourself. And I think there's a lot of especially on social media, there's a lot of support around or a lot of stories around women who have eating disorders. And so it's kind of a bit, it's kind of like a once in a blue moon thing that I come across a guy, a guy talking about it. And I think that there is quite a large amount of guys who, who have some 
kind of eating disorder, whether it be binging or whether it be bulimia or perhaps one of the more recent things around sort of bigorexia, you know, needing to, instead of trying to trim down that, that body fat and look better, they want to build a lot of muscle and they're, they're never happy. And, and I think guys still have those, those real self-esteem issues that a lot of the time bleed into the image of yourself and what people think of you. And so I'd say that, that it's very important to talk about it as a, as a man, just to allow other people to, to see that, yeah, there are other people out there who have it and it's not a bad, like it's not bad to open up about it. It's, you know, just like with any other sort of disorder or any difficulty in life, it's not always down to you and what's what you've done. A lot of the time it's how you've experienced life and how your childhood's gone and a combination of lots of different genetic and environmental factors. And it's, it's not their fault and it doesn't mean anything about your personality. Mm. Yeah. And I think such great points. Do you have any suggestions in terms of how services could be made more accessible to men to reduce that stigma? I don't have any personal direct sort of eating disorder therapy but I do know that maybe if there were more men who were who were open about it Mm. and felt felt more empowered to talk about their experiences then maybe we would see a shift in that I think you know quite often vulnerability and emotional openness is more characterized as a as a more typical female trait in the eyes of most most people, which obviously isn't isn't the case. Um, I think that in general, maybe maybe men tend to be less like that. But you know, we're all human beings. We all have, well, most of us have the capacity to be empathic and to be open, and we we do want to be heard and understood and validated. And so, if we can sort of shift that idea of what masculinity is and what you know, opening up about your experiences should be interpreted as, you know, weakness versus strength, then maybe there might be a shift in in how men are open to sort of going into that kind of therapy. Mm. Yeah, no, very true. I think we do need to have more male voices, don't we? I know <laughs> the, the Freddie Flintoff documentary was quite helpful, wasn't it, last year, I think. In terms of, I, I haven't seen that. Yeah, no, it's, it's one that's probably worth, worth a watch when you have a spare couple of hours. Sure. Yeah. Is he is he like a cricketer or something? Yeah, he's a cricketer, and um, okay. yeah, he suffered from um, bulimia. Yeah, no, to be honest with you, I probably wouldn't have even known that before the documentary. So, <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> I'm not very I'm not very up to date with the people in celebrities and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, me neither. <laughs> so I'm quite interested. In Taekwondo, was it acknowledged that maybe some people were struggling with their relationship with food or eating disorders, or was it quite was it not really talked about? I think it's it's one of those things that have been instilled into the sport. You know, if there's not really support for that, if anything you get 
somewhat shamed if you can't make your weight, you know, not being professional or I can't recall any talk about healthy management of eating. You know, it was very much left up to the teenagers and young adults and kids to try and, or, or adults of those kids to try and sort that out. There wasn't any particular, you know, set of seminars that you could watch about how to healthily cut weight and how to, um, how much weight cutting is too much. And I think definitely, you know, it's it quite a unhealthy environment for sort of instilling those eating disorders. Yeah, it's an unfortunate thing. There hasn't been really that much support for it in the in the taekwondo community specifically in the uk mm. oh it's really interesting to hear i know i've worked with ballet dancers gymnasts jockeys you know other people that have um, experienced that real pressure to look a certain way be a certain weight and it's really tricky isn't it i think going forward it's definitely an area that needs to be addressed because I think it leaves a lot of people, doesn't it, with quite a disordered relationship with food. Mm-hmm. I think that it's, you know, if, the, if there was some way that we could try and regulate the amount of weight people cut, I think that would definitely help. It's sad to see, but a lot of the high-level athletes from pretty much all of the countries in the, in the sort of international stage, a lot of them are very severely underweight. And you can see it and it's, I think it's, it's unfair for the other people who want to maintain a healthy weight. And it's also dangerous for that person. You know, mm. there's issues around, I don't know, like may, maybe around osteoporosis and around hormones and for women about fertility and getting sick. And, you know, mm. for me all the time, I was always coming down with something because of the the low body weight that I had. Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think it's such a significant issue and really tricky, isn't it? Because I guess that person, by being underweight as well, they're getting a lot of praise and validation and doing yeah. well. And so you're getting very mixed messages, aren't you? So it, I would imagine if you're competing as well at that high level, must it would be incredibly challenging maybe not to sort of follow suit of what's expected in terms of your mm-hmm. physique. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. So could you tell us a bit more about the link between autism and the interoception and how that affects kind of your ability to, or, or you know, not specifically just yours, but one's ability to be able to tune in maybe to hunger and fullness and the body cues? Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's quite an important thing to talk about because I know a lot of advocates in the social media community that haven't really heard about interoception. And it's kind of similar to a concept called alexithymia, which is, is basically something that, that occurs in most, like a, a very large majority of autistic people. And it's a difficulty noticing and categorizing emotions. It's quite similar to that. You know, we struggle to, to understand when we're upset and we can only real really feel the emotions and, and say, hey, look, I'm angry or I'm scared or I'm happy when they're at their peak, when, when they're at a, a point where it's hard to bring yourself down from that emotion. So it's, it's quite hard to regulate. And I think it's the same in, in interoception. 
bodily signals like hunger, thirst, needing the toilet, all of those kind of things, they can be a bit dulled. So, you know, hydration, it's quite hard for us to maintain hydration because we need to get very, very dehydrated to say, oh, I could really do with a glass of water. It's usually only until around the end of the day that we realize I haven't eaten anything today or I haven't had a drink today or I've had very minimal amount of water. And maybe that's why I feel sluggish and maybe that's why my, my mood's a bit up and down and I feel a bit stressed. And so that can, it can kind of interplay with, particularly for me, with eating disorders, with binging, because I'm currently on a medication called metazapine, which is sort of anti-anxiety, sedative slash antidepressant kind of medication. And its side effect is that it's an appetite stimulant. And I could literally, I could go happily all day, not eating at all. But as soon as I have the metazapine, it's like I can see my hunger for the first time all day and it makes me ravenous. I'm like, oh, I need to, I need to eat everything and trying to navigate my mental health, my world of mental health, trying to help with my anxiety and depression. It's kind of had effects on other areas of my life, like binging. And so I have, I always have to take into consideration how I'm going to feel after having mamatazepine, it's really strange. It's like it pushes my hungers up to a level that I can notice them. And then obviously, if I don't remember to eat during the day, it's probably going to be a bit more intense at nighttime as well. So it's, it's almost like a constant battle with yourself to try and look after yourself. It's not like a natural process. Like mm-hmm. you have to really plan it like, okay, it's 12 now. I don't feel hungry, but I should eat anyway, just, just even if it's just a little bit. And that tends to be the way that we as autistic people have to navigate all aspects of life. It's a very cerebral-like process. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, thank you for explaining that. And I guess it just shows how challenging that can be to live with day to day and how it could make you much more vulnerable to falling into patterns of disordered eating. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. So Thomas, what are sort of the main like self-care strategies that you now implement in your life to stay on top of your mental health? I wouldn't say that it's a particularly a, a self-care strategy, but you know, I was talking before about anchor points around things. You know, it was taekwondo first and then it was the moment on, on my way to an event, a taekwondo event where I realized that you know, all of these bad experiences I could talk about in my adulthood. Around about midway for at university, my granddad passed away. And at that time, I was sort of going through a lot of personal growth. I was learning a lot about self-improvement and I was learning a lot about psychology and, and sociology. And really, I came across a lot of talks about the importance of values And I realized through a lot of personal digging and thinking that I wanted my values to help people. And those other two anchoring points that I had were all about me. I wanted to be good at Taekwondo. I wanted to be 
heard. I wanted people to hear me and understand my the pains that I've gone through. It'd never been about that focus on other people. It's such an amazing thing to, it can be hard sometimes, of course, but when your mood's so disorganized and when it's really hard to enough to want to continue life and want to continue having experience and doing things, if you have that sort of outside focus on, on trying to help people and a mission and a, a value-based inside-out strategy to life, then things tend to fall into place a lot more. You, it's less about, right, I've done the wrong things for me and now I feel awful. It's more about if I want to help people to the best of my ability, I need to be in as tip-top shape as I can mentally. I need to meditate. I need to exercise regularly. I need to take my meds on time. I need to eat properly. I need to engage with people and, and push myself to socialize when I feel like I want to isolate. And it's, it's those kind of things that have helped, but it's, it's the values-based thing, the wanting to help people that, that's pushed me to help myself in a sense. You know, it's self-esteem being quite low and lack of care about yourself it doesn't really lend to having those strategies, but if it's for other people and for your mission, it feels a lot easier to do, mm. if, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. I think it's just incredible to hear as well, just how you obviously, from quite a young age as well, got really sort of rooted in your values, haven't you, and your purpose, and, you know, walking that road as much as you can in line with those. So I think it's just really wonderful and inspiring to hear. Thank you. It's got a long, long time, a lot of thinking, a lot of research to get to this point. <laughs> so Thomas, where can people find you if they want to listen to your podcast, you know, find out more about the work you do? Yeah, I've recently made my website, thomashenley.co.uk. There's a bunch of stuff and links and stories about my work and such. But you can also find me on YouTube and social media at Asperger's Growth. I typically used Instagram more than anything. And my podcast is the 4040 podcast, which is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google and all, and all of those, all of those other ones. And of course, if anybody has any questions, they're very welcome. You're very welcome to send them over to my email, aspergersgrowth at gmail.com. Okay, no, lovely. Well, thank you. And I'll make sure all those details go in the show notes. I'm sure that there will be, you know, quite a lot of people interested in the follow-up. Thank you, Harriet. So, Thomas, I just want to really thank you for coming on the podcast today and for sharing your story and all these valuable insights. Really, really appreciate it. I generally, I appreciate that you've, you've sat through my ramblings about <laughs> my own life. <laughs> I know I can monologue a fair bit, so I'm grateful for the opportunity. Okay, well, thank you. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Thomas's details in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would follow, rate and review the podcast as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.